You know, I don't know if you feel this way. I'm sure you do. I'm sure I am not the only one that feels this way. But life is so busy. Life is busy. Does anybody feel like life is busy? Okay, I don't think anybody would be like, you know what, I don't really think life is that busy. Maybe some uh, retired folk, but I know retired folk that might be more busy than I am. I've never seen Bob Canolti sit down. Uh, he's always doing something. He's always going throughout the building, joking on somebody, doing something, right? So we're all busy doing this, that, and the other. And, and when we get busy, sometimes we feel, and, and I feel like I, I can go through probably a whole week without really stopping, it feels like. I, I'm going to this appointment, or I'm going to that appointment, or I, I'm, I'm doing this, and I'm doing that. And uh, about a year and a half ago, I learned that this whole not planning things out thing that I had grown accustomed to doing for 20-some-odd years, uh, 25-some-odd years, I, I realized this, this wasn't going to work anymore. I, I've got to actually keep a calendar. It's, I, I don't know, Jensie, was it about a year and a half ago? A year and a half ago, we started a shared calendar. Anybody know what that is? A shared calendar, by the way, if you're having issues in your marriage, this may help your marriage. Uh, if, you, if you get a shared calendar, if, if, if you're having issues in your family, maybe a shared calendar will, will fix the whole issue itself because what happens with a shared calendar is you, you share the next event or you share uh, the next meeting or appointment or whatever you want to that calendar and your spouse or your family member will automatically get that notification of what's happening on that day at that time and, and, it, and it really changes everything for a busy life. But if you were to look at our calendar and all the things that we're trying to juggle, even just my small family, it would be evident how busy our life is. Whether it's my life or, or what Jensie is doing, we got a doctor appointment this day, we got a Young of Families event that day, elders meeting that day, go and do event that day, speaking engagement that day, we got people coming in and out of town this day, we're going out of town this day, etc., etc. Can you relate? To this busy life, I know all the young families are necks are breaking back there, nodding. That's just the nature of life, though, isn't it? Life is innately busy. All of us feel this way from time to time, and all of us feel this way at some point in life. And when things get like this, when things get busy, what what's what's going to start happening? Maybe you are more perfect than me, but when that happens to me, things start to go by the wayside, right? You start to forget some of the things that you should do because you're so busy and you're so stretched and you so, have so many different responsibilities. You start to forget and stuff starts to go by the wayside. Have you ever been walking by a mirror and stop and go, what is that? Have you ever walked by a mirror and say, when did that get there? Have you ever walked by a, a mirror and have to stop and, and say, what went wrong? You know, have you ever looked in a mirror and, and say, when did this happen? How long has this been here? What happened to me? You know, it, it, I really think about uh, the, the clip from um, the Santa Claus 1 uh, with Tim Allen where he continually tries to shave that beard or, or tries to look younger when he's transforming into Santa Claus. And, and sure enough, 
it grows right back before you know it. And he goes, I'm in big trouble, right? Big trouble. You, you know that scene? That's what it reminds me of sometimes. You're, you're, you're looking at the mirror and you're like, who is this guy? When did I get so old? Where, where do these wrinkles come from? Where, where did this extra weight come from? I, I need to shave. What have I been doing? I've been doing all this other stuff. I haven't even taken care of myself. Where has the time gone? Who is this old person looking at me? Sometimes we look in this mirror and we, we don't even know who it is looking at us back. And tonight in our study of the restoration movement, the brotherhood as a whole is having one of these moments. Tonight, the brotherhood as a whole looks at itself in the mirror and says, what happened? What happened to us? If you haven't been with us in the past few weeks, we've been going over some of the, the critical issues, some of the, the, the biggest problems that the church had to face back in the time of the restoration movement. Some of these issues that, that the restorers had to confront and, and had to face head on. And it all started with this tiny little fracture. It all started with, with, with a tiny, tiny little speck of a fracture that, that expanded further and further and fractured more and more as time went on. We remember, if you've been with us, it started with uh, the Missionary Society, and that was the original crack in the windshield we talked about, and, and, and we talked about how that crack expanded further and further into uh, the issue of instrumental music, and we talked about how that issue expanded further into the issue last week we talked about of the Civil War. But tonight, our study brings the culminating result of decades after decades of discord and division in the brotherhood. And that result was not a church split. It was not simply just an intercity uh, church squabble, you know, you, 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 you may have experienced those before, you may have been around those before, you may, may have witnessed some of that, you may be being part of, of a church split, but it, that's not what we're talking about tonight. In fact, it's, it's much, much larger of an issue than that. Because tonight we're not talking about a church split, we're talking about the moment the entire brotherhood split. We're talking about the moment that the brotherhood that had been growing for, for so long with, with these efforts of the restoration plea and, and restoration theology and, and how it was spreading like wildfire throughout the land. We're talking about the brotherhood of the Lord's church that we've been talking about the past two quarters. That's what we're talking about tonight is the split that occurred among the entire brotherhood. Before we get into that, let's remember where we've come before. In phase one, we introduced ourselves to this idea of restoration. What, what is restoration biblically? What, what is the biblical basis for restoration? We talked about the foundation of the movement. We went back in time and we saw how things led up into the movement we're talking about 
in this study. We talked about the formation of the movement and some of the, the, the great moments in restoration history that, that really built uh, this movement that we've been talking about. We talked about in phase four at the beginning of it what pattern theology is all about and how God's word gives across patterns that we are to follow and, and it gives us the formula and the recipe for how to interpret scripture. But in phase four, we've seen these issues that the church faced, and we've already talked about some of them, baptism and, and the other three we've already mentioned tonight. We've talked about how the restorers looked at these issues and instructed all of, of the people throughout the land on what God's word and God's expectation is. And we talked about this missionary society issue, we, we remember, if you remember, we talked about that happening in the 1830s, in the 1840s, and then it expands into the issue of instrumental music, which we've talked about was in the 1850s, in the 1860s. Ultimately, we talked about last week, it explodes into the issue of the Civil War, which we know happened in the 1860s. And so you can see over our study the past few weeks, you've seen three decades of nothing but discord and division brewing and growing throughout the brotherhood. So after 30 some odd years of, of division and discord growing and abounding in the church instead of unity and growth, what's going to happen? After 30 years of, of discord, what's going to happen is you, you, you look in the mirror and you say, who are we? What, what, what happened to this, to this church? What, what happened to, to our beliefs? And what happened to the unity that we once had? And what happens in the decades following is much of the same. Last week we talked about how after the Civil War, the sense of brotherhood in the church to the sense it was prior to the war, would never be restored in, in the following decades after the Civil War, that disunity and that discord and that divide only continues to grow more and more. You see, because as this division and discord is growing, guess what is also happening? We don't realize this much, but as this discord and division is growing, the movement's greatest leaders, these men that we have been talking about all these many weeks, are no longer there to lead. The men that we've been studying and talking about and looking at some of their quotes and learning about some of the things that they taught and some of the things that they said about, about the Bible and about the church and about restoring the ancient order, all those different things, they're, they're no longer there to promote unity. They're no longer there to lead. They're no longer there to be able to direct and guide what was once a growing movement. And unfortunately, it's because they literally passed away. We don't realize this, but Barton W. Stone passed away in 1844. Thomas Campbell, the writer of the Declaration and Address we've talked about, he passed away in 1854. Walter Scott, the, the man that we talked about, that uh, talked about uh, 
soul winning through logic and, and going through the scriptures and understanding what God's expectations are about baptism and about salvation and about the church. He passes away in, in 1861. Alexander Campbell, one of the most prolific figures we've been talking about, he passed away in 1866. Raccoon John Smith, we've talked about him. He passed away in 1868. Tolbert Fanning, we talked about him last week. He passed away in 1874. Benjamin Franklin is someone we've talked about a lot over the past few weeks. He died in 1878. Moses Lard, he died in, in, in 1880. So you're starting to see as the decades go by and as these issues grow and grow, so too is the lack of leadership and the lack of, of, of voices that once held so much influence over the movement. Because as their leadership passes on, so too does their influence and as they pass on, so too does the editorship of some of these periodicals that we've been talking about. Where they have been writing these articles and writing these magazines and writing these great, great works for so many years, you're going to start seeing more and more that those editorships are, giving, are being handed over to younger men. And unfortunately, some of these younger men started to put into... Uh, the, the everyday talk they started to put into more progressive ideas and lines of thinking when it comes to some of these issues like the missionary society and the instrument. They started to put into those magazines and put into those periodicals more and more progressive way of thinking so that it was more and more commonly accepted and commonly published. The instrument and the societies were growing more and more in common throughout the brotherhood at this time after the Civil War. But way more severe than that is what we talked about last week. Way more severe than just uh, uh, the missionary society or the instrument. Way more severe than that are the hurt feelings that are lingering from the Civil War. The emotions and the feelings that, that were lingering and, and and still permeating all the way back to the Civil War. You see, because after the Civil War, brothers in Christ are now charged with having to forgive other brothers in Christ for killing their family members. Going to war against my husband, and now I'm a widow, and now I'm supposed to worship with you. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the, the, the discord? Can you imagine the divide? Can you imagine the, the animosity that was existing at this time in the Lord's church? Because as we talked about last week, those empty pews were different than our empty pews. Those empty pews were loud. The emotions were high. Feelings were deeply hurt. And those feelings would remain hurt for many, many decades. Slaves had been freed. But not so much in the church. Slaves had been freed by the, the, the land, but they not necessarily had been freed in the church. And so you have this, this whole group of people, these former slaves that are members of the Lord's church that are trying and having to figure out 
what the brotherhood looks like for them post-war. And this is the environment that we find ourselves in at the beginning of our study tonight. This is the, this is the environment of the Lord's church that, that we're talking about at the beginning of our study in the year 1906. In the year 1906, we're talking about the aftermath of a half century of growing animosity and division. Which, by the way, is phase five of our study. The division of the movement. You know, division is bound to happen whenever there is a prolonged... doesn't matter what relationship it is, Division is bound to happen after there is a prolonged toxic relationship. I don't care how good of friends you are with someone else. You could have the best friend in the world. They could be best friends from birth. You could go through so many things together. But if you inject enough turmoil into that friendship, if you inject enough problems within that friendship, at some point, you're going to go your separate ways. Right? Have you had friends where you thought, surely this will be my friend the rest of my life, and then not too long after, where are they? So we see this happen in friendships, but we also see it happen in business. Sometimes in business you have two uh, people who are high up who have very strong disagreements or, or even people who work side by side and, and they've been very good at working together for, for a certain amount of time, but at, at some point it just doesn't work anymore and they have, they're at such odds with each other that they just can't coexist in the same space. You inject enough turmoil and enough problems into that relationship and what's going to happen? You're going to go your separate ways. Teammates, we see it in sports all the time where you have these teammates who, who have thrown alley-oops together or who have led block for the running back or whoever it is, whatever sport it might be, you see these teammates that used to get so along with one another. But because of some of the national pressure or the national media or the inability to win or, or whatever it might be, you're, you're, sometimes you see even the closest friends going their separate ways to other teams. Unfortunately, we see it in marriages all the time. We see it in some of the strongest marriages that you, you've probably ever seen. If you inject enough turmoil, if you inject enough problems, unfortunately, we see people go their separate ways. And that's exactly what you're going to see in the brotherhood in 1906. In 1906, fighting for unity that they once did. They used to fight for unity. They used to fight for that brotherhood. They used to do whatever it took to, to come to unity together. In 1906, doing that just didn't make sense anymore to many of the Restoration leaders. After so many decades of division and so many decades of discord and problems and arguments and debates, the reality around them made them believe unity could not be achieved. And so what you're going to see in the restoration movement is instead of fighting to remain one body, to remain one brotherhood, 
Instead of doing what Stone and Campbell did when they talked about their disagreements and they extended the right hand of fellowship just like Peter and Paul did in the New Testament. Remember we talked about them extending the right hand of fellowship. Instead of doing that and, and, and going back and forth and coming to a consensus about what God's word says about certain issues. Instead of endeavoring to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace like Paul talks about in Ephesians 4. In the year 1906, the Brotherhood split itself into two factions. The Church of Christ and the Christian Church. Someone says, why 1906? What, what's, what's the big deal about 1906? And perhaps they had already split at that point for many years before then, but 1906 is a big deal because 1906 was the year that even the secular world realized the divide in the brotherhood. Because in 1906, a religious census was done over uh, Christianity in America, and it was done by very high up people in, in secular life. And what they saw when they were doing this census and they were going around trying to understand what the scope of Christianity was and, and how many people belonged to this sect and how many people belonged to this sect. And, and so they automatically thought that the church was a denomination as well. What they saw was that the divide between northern churches and southern churches was as obvious as could possibly be. The atmosphere and, and the distinct differences were so obvious to the census conductors that someone had to ask some questions. And that's exactly what you see happening. The director of the census that conducted this census of the different denominations, even roping the church into this, he says... Or Humble says, S.D. North, the director of the census, wrote David Lipscomb and asked whether there was a religious body called Church of Christ not identified with the disciples of Christ or any other Baptist body. And if there was such a church, North wanted information about its organization and principles and how the Census Bureau could secure a complete list of those churches. In replying to North's letter, Lipscomb outlined basic principles of the Restoration Movement as formulated in Thomas Campbell's Declaration and Address. Remember we talked about that. Next, Lipscomb charged that these principles had been betrayed when the society and the instrument were introduced and that division had resulted. Let's just stop right here. Why, why is this director of the census reaching out to David Lipscomb? Well, at the time, he couldn't reach out to Alexander Campbell. He's no longer here. He couldn't reach out to Barton W. Stone. He's no longer here. He couldn't reach out to Benjamin Franklin, who was probably the next greatest leader in the Restoration Movement. He was no longer here. And so pretty much the greatest leader that, that we had left in the Restoration Movement at the time was David Lipscomb because he was the editor of probably the most popular periodical at the time in the Brotherhood. And it's the periodical many of us know to this day as the Gospel Advocate. And so he reaches out to David Lipscomb and he, he says that Lipscomb, the way Lipscomb sees it is he says those who are calling themselves disciple churches and calling themselves Christian churches, they have withdrawn themselves already 
from the Church of Christ when they betrayed the restoration principle with the idea of missionary societies and the use of instruments. Lipscomb writes back to this director, he says, the polity of churches being purely congregational, the, influence works, the influences work slowly and the division comes gradually. The parties are distinguished as they call themselves conservatives and progressives, as they call each other annies and digressives. And so you can see already sort of the animosity that is forming with Brother Lipscomb talking about uh, the state of the church at this time. So Lipscomb tries to explain that animosity by talking about how when they're talking about themselves, they are proudly conservative. Or they are proudly progressive. But when they talk about each other, they are antis and digressives. So what you're going to see is those in favor of the instrument in society are progressives, and those who are in opposition are obviously conservatives. But instead of, of progressing the cause, conservatives saw that progressives were actually digressing the cause and going backward, falling back into the denominationalism that they had just escaped. And instead of seeing the restoration plea of, of speaking where the Bible speaks and being silent where the Bible's silent, progressives started to see conservatives as just anti-everything, against everything. And about this, Lipscomb writes, In many places, the differences have not yet resulted in separation. There are some in the conservative churches in sympathy with progressives who worship and work with the conservative because they have no other church facilities. The reverse of this is also true. Many of the conservatives are trying to appropriate the name Church of Christ to distinguish themselves from Christian or Disciples churches. So when it comes to the result of this census in 1906 when it comes to this census that, that was conducted to try to understand and try to get a scope of Christianity as a whole here are some of the results the Christian church the, the, the part of the brotherhood that split off into the Christian church was way bigger than that who stayed in the church of Christ the Christian faction of this split was much larger and it wasn't even close. In fact 8,293 congregations were affiliated with the Christian church after this split. 8,293 and only 2,649 were affiliated with the church of Christ. And Lipscomb go-aheads and, and says that the numbers aren't perfect, but there's really a discrepancy of about 820,000 people. The Christian church had 820,000 more than the Church of Christ. Much of this makes sense if you start to look into it. Remember we talked about the Christian church really starting out to be in the north with where there, where there was the instrument and where there was the missionary society and what do we have in the north versus the south at the time. In the north we have way bigger population and way larger cities and industry and we, we've talked about that a little bit. And in the south you've got smaller cities, you've got agricultural cities. 
And so it makes sense that their congregations were much bigger than the southern congregation. But when it comes to this ultimate split, I love how Humble puts it. He says, later, as the movement grew and the first traces of denominational mentality began to appear, many interpreted the restoration principle less rigidly by allowing many practices as expedients. Moses Lard proved to be correct when he warned in 1869 that expediency might be the rock on which the restoration movement went to pieces. At least it was one of the rocks. So as we have discussed throughout this class a few times already, this idea of expediency is the hardest part of the formula to understand. It's the hardest part of the recipe of pattern theology and how to interpret Scripture and how to apply Scripture and how to live out Scripture in our everyday life. Expediency is the murkiest water of it all. However, it is a necessary part of how we live out our faith. However, expediency given to some people with an agenda is a very dangerous thing. And it is that same dangerous test with expediency that we face even to this day. People saying things are expedient when God's Word does not allow for that expediency. The past few weeks we've been trying to talk about some of the roots of some of these issues that the Restoration faced. What's truly at the root of the missionary society issue? What's truly at the root of the instrument issue? What's truly at the root of the Civil War issue? And what we've talked about a little bit is that when our motives are in the wrong place, that gives birth to inconsistency. Because at some points we're going to try to say what God's Word says, and at some points we're going to try to say what we want it to say. And that's called inconsistency. And so when our motives lead to inconsistency, our inconsistency is going to lead to division. And that's exactly what you see in the restoration movement. That's exactly what we see in our lives to this day. But ultimately, those motives and those inconsistencies and those divisions are going to lead to what? I cheated for you. The screen says extremism. What's extremism? What is the idea of that? What does extremism mean? Well, it's going to make polar opposites. Whenever you have such division, you're going to have people on so different sides of the spectrum, right? We see this happen in our everyday life. People on complete opposite ends of the spectrum. People on this side of the pendulum and people on that side of the pendulum. And that's exactly what happened in the Restoration Movement. West says this, Certainly one of the major concerns of the church has been presented by the extremists who have frequently arisen. The sincerity of this class is hardly open to question, but that the total effect of their influence has been a retarding influence is equally undeniable. These extremes owe their origin to a jealous concern over Campbell's motto, where the Bible is silent, we are silent. Thus the extremes 
were created. Let's talk about what West is talking about. When there is so much division and there is so many different polar opposites, when there are people leaving the, the, the pattern, when there are people leaving the guideline, what's going to happen is people are going to react to that. Because that person did that, well, that means I need to run as far away from that as possible. And that's a natural thing that we do. That's a natural thing that we do. If you put your hand on the stove, you're going to take it off. You see someone put the hand on the stove, I'm not going to get close to the stove. Right? So it makes sense that this would happen. You go to the other extreme. However, it also leads to many issues, especially when it comes to our faith and our walk with Christ. Wes says, you know, I, I, I've never doubted the sincerity of these people. People that are on either extreme, you can't doubt their sincerity because they are sincere about what they believe. They sincerely believe that they are right. But as I said weeks ago, you can be sincerely convicted of what you believe be sincerely wrong at the same time. Just because you are sincere in what you believe doesn't mean that you are at all right. And that's what you're going to see with some of these extremists on either side of the pendulum. When you look at the Apostle Paul back in the book of Acts when he was sawed, would you ever doubt his sincerity? Would you ever doubt that, the, that Saul, the persecutor of the church, was sincere in his belief that these people were blasphemous in God's eyes? I would never doubt for a moment that Saul was sincere. But I think we can all see that Saul was sincerely wrong at the same time. And that's where you're going to see when you think about extreme people on either side of the pendulum. What West is trying to say uh, in this quote is, he says, when you think about these issues, these issues that we've been battling over however many years, they gave birth and they produced these progressives. And so they produced progressives, but guess what they also produced? Extreme conservatives. Which one's worse? Not it, right? I don't want to say. Some of us are like, well, extreme progressives are. Well, I, 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 I'm just going to let you know. God's word disagrees. So let's talk about what it means to be extremists and what, what happened here in the Lord's church. Because in the same time that the Christian church was splitting off of the churches of Christ, many don't know that was the exact same time as some of the roots of ultra-conservatism started to split away from the Lord's church too. And it's only natural. You see that some of these progressives are going off into the Christian church and going off and doing instruments and doing missionary society. So I'm going to swing the other way, way past what God is actually happy with. In the same time the Christian church split off from the churches of Christ, there is a growing, extreme conservative movement among churches of Christ. And in fact, 
this is the exact same time that many of the roots of our non-institutional brethren were born. Some of our non-institutional brethren that we see to this very day, the roots of that were born and planted right about the same time frame of this Christian church split. I will say before I proceed that the real true growth of the non-institutional movement didn't start for many years later. It really wouldn't take hold for many years later, but the roots and the mentality of the non-institutional can be seen and, and started right here in the same time frame because Daniel Summer, you can tell we're going along in time because this is an actual picture instead of an artist rendering of, an, of, a, of a person. Daniel Summer saw that so many Christians left the Church of Christ for the progressive Christian church, so he decides to start a movement to the total other end of the spectrum, ultra-conservatism. Summer was an ultra-conservative in spirit. This was the story of Summer's life. Brotherhood critic. He believed that Christian colleges and orphan homes were unscriptural, and he opposed the located preacher. These ideas came to be known as Summerism. Through the early decades of the 20th century, Summerism seriously retarded the growth of the churches of Christ. Let's think about this. When our motives are out of line, it gives birth to inconsistency. When our inconsistency exists, it gives birth to division. And when division exists, it gives birth to extremism. What, have, what does extremism give birth to? It gives birth to no growth. And what you're going to see in the church at this time, the brotherhood, the brotherhood that was once, as I said, boiling over, foaming over the teapot and burning through the grass like a wildfire all throughout the south, all throughout the north, and all throughout the nation. The movement that once united all manner of people from all manner of background. The movement that was at once the most unifying faith in the world was now torn at both ends. And you're going to have those on the left tearing at the seams. And those on the right tearing at the seams. You're going to have those over here saying, we got to get with the times. We, well, look at all these other churches. They're growing. They're, they're, they're doing so much more because they have more, more amazing worship or whatever they might say about the instrument. Or, or they're able to have so many so much greater funds than we have because they have the missionary society we got to get with the times over here come on look at how successful they are but then you're going to have people over here on the other end of the spectrum that say you know what i don't see a pattern for red carpet i don't see a pattern for air conditioning they didn't have it back then i don't see a pattern for podiums where did paul use a podium if you use a podium we're splitting i'm out of here you're going to have both sides of the pendulum. You're going to have both sides of the most extreme on either end. 
What does that remind you of? Hopefully, if you've been with us long enough, it reminds you of our lesson. Do not depart to the right. Do not depart to the left. Hopefully, if you've been with us long enough, it reminds you of of what God's Word says about not adding and not taking away and not loosening and not binding where God has not loosened or bound. But because some drifted to the right and because others drifted to the left, because some added and others took away, because some loosened and others bound, and because very few sought unity, the brotherhood split. And it's a split that we witness to this very day. It's a split that has never found unity. It is a split that we have turned a blind eye to. Hey, let's just not talk about that. Hey, let's just not talk about all that happened way back then. Let's not talk about what happened in 1906 when the brotherhood, the body of Christ, split in half. That split stands to this very day, 117 years later. What do we do about it? Tonight, as we try to bring this message home, as we try to make it matter to us and to our current context, the question that we have to ask ourselves is, how important is unity to God? It's as simple as that. How important is the idea of unity to God? And more specifically to us tonight, how important is the brotherhood of Christ to us? You know, I'm afraid in our day today, we have grown so accustomed to standing for the truth that we do not see unity as a part of the truth we are standing for. Let me say that again. I'm afraid that we are so accustomed to standing for the truth that we have forgotten that unity is part of that truth we're standing for. Brothers and sisters, if we're not standing for unity in our lives, we're not standing for anything that Christ would have us. Unfortunately, I see a lot of brothers and sisters, and I catch myself, fine and dandy with division. I see a lot of brothers and sisters and I catch myself from time to time just fine with the thought of division. I see brothers and sisters and I I catch myself saying from time to time, well, hey, I'm better off without them. Whenever someone leaves the church, if if there's someone I don't find uh, to be (laughs) fun to be around or or maybe they've caused some issues or or maybe they're... they're, uh, chronic complainers or whatever it might be and and they decide to go off somewhere else sometimes I catch myself thinking you know what we're better off I know you've thought it too 
How important is unity to God? Brothers and sisters, when we stop being brokenhearted about the division in the Lord's church, we have completely missed the point of the Lord's church. If you find yourself kind of callous to the thought of division tonight, if you're just fine and dandy with maybe division that you have between a brother or a sister, and you're fine, that's just the way things have been for years, and that's the way they're always going to be. Brethren, the moment we come, we become comfortable with division in the Lord's church. We've forgotten the point of the Lord's church. The New Testament could not be more clear on the subject of unity. And a movement, the restoration movement, that prides itself on pattern theology and restoring the ancient order of things, completely lost sight on what the patterns and orders were given for. The pattern of the New Testament and the order of things given from God's Word was given to us so that we might have unity. That's it. That's why we were given everything we've been given in God's Word so that we might have unity with one another. God gave us a pattern. He gave us this New Testament. He gave us the New Testament church so that we might find unity in doctrine, unity in faith, and unity in our walks with Christ. From the very beginning of the Christian faith, Christ said, if you're turning your Bibles to Mark chapter 3, verses 24 and 25, at the very beginning, at the very onset of Christianity, Jesus said, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. Brethren, the church is the kingdom of God. And because it was divided against itself way back in 1906, it could not stand. Because the kingdom was divided against itself, what once used to be brothers had now become cousins. Christ made it clear here that division is not acceptable. Because how can we expect to fight in this spiritual warfare that we are engaged in if instead of fighting the enemy, we're fighting each other? If instead of, 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 of fighting Satan and the, and, the, and the demons and all the spiritual warfare that Ephesians 6 talks about, we're fighting one another. We're arguing with one another. Sometimes I think the church is just like that Midianite army in Judges chapter 7. And instead of vanquishing this weaker enemy of Gideon's army, even though in, in their mind there was no reason that they should lose. There was no reason they should lose this fight. But the Lord made their swords go against one another. And they slayed themselves and slayed one another with the sword. Brethren, an army fighting against itself 
is an army for the enemy. Unity was one of the first things Jesus t talked about in Mark chapter 3, but it's also one of the last things Jesus talked about in John chapter 17. Because in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus pled that His church would one day be one. Turn to John chapter 17. John chapter 17, beginning in verse 20. Jesus says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. And the glory which you give me, I, give, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfect in one. And that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Brethren, as Christ was preparing for the cross, hours later, he was going to be crucified for the sins of mankind. As he was bleeding sweat drops of blood, when he was overwhelmed with what was about to happen to him, he had you on his mind. At the climax of the ministry of Jesus, when He is about to go to the cross, the Son of God, the omnipotent Son of God, was about to subject Himself to human mortality. He had you in mind. He had the Beautiful Church of Christ in mind. He was praying for you, and He was praying for me, and He was praying that we might be one. He says, I pray for all those who will believe in me, that they may be one in us, that they may be one just as the Father and the Son are one, that they may be perfect in one. And so that oneness of our faith in Christ could prove to the world that Jesus is the Son of God. So that the world might believe, Jesus says. So that our oneness might show the world how incredibly loved we are by the Creator of the universe. Even though Christ pled for that unity, we know the first century church was already beholden to division. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In verse 10, Paul says, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, that by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? The church in Corinth, instead of speaking the same thing and being in the same mind and in the same judgment, instead of what Paul talks about being perfectly joined together, they were as divided as contentious as the world was around them. And my question is, does that sound familiar? 
Does that sound familiar to you? We know when we look at the restoration movement in our specific study tonight, it couldn't have been more poignant of a message. And we look at the restoration movement, it couldn't be more close to home than that. But I want to make it more close to home than that in asking you, does that sound like what you witnessed today in your life? Raise your hand if you've ever been in a church that split. Okay. Keep them up. Keep them up. Raise your hand if you've ever worshipped in a congregation that at one time had a church split. Okay. Raise your hand if you know of a congregation in your city where you grew up that split. You can put them down. You know, we are blessed here at Beaufort Church of Christ. And it is a blessing. We've never experienced a church split at this congregation. We've been, I pray to God we never will. But none of us are strangers to division. Just because we've never experienced a big old public church split doesn't mean that all of us haven't experienced and been a part and been active in division. We see it every day. We hear it every day. And we witness it every day. You turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 2 through 3. Paul is going to say, With all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Brethren, tonight the question I have for you is, what are you endeavoring to do? Paul says we are to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Brother Bob Canolte prays it every time he prays that we might keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What are you endeavoring to do? Are you endeavoring to keep unity with your brothers and sisters, or are you someone who endeavors to sow discord? Someone hears that question tonight, and they know what you should say. You know what you should say? Of course, I, I'm not one who sows discord. I'm all about unity. But do their words and actions prove that to be true? Or do their words and actions prove that all they do is sow discord. Brothers and sisters, if we are not endeavoring to keep the unity that Paul pled for and Christ died for, we are not worthy to be called Christians. Because as verse 1 says of Ephesians chapter 4, I beseech you to walk Worthy of the calling by which you were called. And right after that, he says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Brethren, if we are not endeavoring to keep unity among one another, we are not worthy of the calling by which we're called. We are not worthy to be called Christians. Tonight, we have seen that the restorers themselves lost the ability, or perhaps they lost the will, to maintain the unity 
and division occurred. A division that we witness to this very day. In what way are we guilty of the same tonight? The question we have going forward is, we've already answered it a little bit, but is the restoration complete? Is the restoration complete in our lives? A lot of people say there's no need to restore the church. We've made it. We've arrived. We've already done everything. We've restored the ancient order. We've already restored the church. The question we have going forward is, have we achieved the goal of Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 27? That is something that we will investigate next time because it is to be continued. Let's close in a quick word of prayer. Our dear most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the day that you blessed us with, for this study, for this period that we've had to open up your word. We pray that each one of us will individually look into our hearts and ask the question, what are we sowing in our lives? Are we sowing unity or are we sowing discord? Are we, sow, are we sowing love or are we sowing division? We have so many opportunities each and every day to do either one of those things. We pray that you would help us choose to do what Christ did, to choose to do what the New Testament teaches us to do, and to seek unity with everything in our lives. We thank you for Christ who allows us to have such unity. We pray that when we come up short, that you would forgive us. It's in Jesus' name.